Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this episode, I'm in conversation with the Tony and Emmy-nominated legend Tova Feldshu. And if you didn't know, she is returning to the New York stage in a new play tomorrow, starting Saturday, December 4th, and running through Sunday, January 2nd, at the Museum of Jewish Heritage's newly renovated and state-of-the-art theater in Battery Park City. Like she has many times before, she's playing a real-life figure, this time Dr. Ruth Westheimer. She's leading the one-woman show from Mark St. Germain called Becoming Dr. Ruth, a show that she did previously before the pandemic. In our conversation, we talk about getting to know this incredibly dynamic and interesting woman, the passion that she has for the work that she does, Dr. Ruth dancing at her daughter's wedding, and much more. We will have information on how you can get tickets to Becoming Dr. Ruth at the Museum of Jewish Heritage and how you can connect and keep up with Tova Fellowship on social media in the show notes and on broadwayradio.com. So without further ado, here's my interview with Tova Feldshu. I wanted to just dive in um, with the show. You, I, if I have been told correctly, you just finished up um, a rehearsal just shortly before we started talking. Um, how has this rehearsal process been considering you've done this show before? Are you able to kind of dive in anew and, and, and mine out some different things for this, uh, for this process that maybe you hadn't been able to do the first time around? Well spoken. The pacing, not of the text, the pacing of the show, the physical pacing of how I walk the stage or stalk the stage like a good soldier has completely changed because the stage is much wider. So if the stage is much wider and it takes Hmm. you 10 steps to get somewhere that took you eight, it changes the timing. So therefore, you change the location of the prop. So you can have eight steps and the prop is not in the place it was for the prior production and it adjusts your behavior pattern. So I would say that in many areas, the show is not only deepened, but rebirthed. It's really being rebirthed on a more, um, on a wider uh, platform. And I can tell you right now, if we get to Broadway or off Broadway, or if we tour, the first thing that will be required in my contract is the floor of this floor plan, that it has to be the same footage so that we don't go through this again. Now, this hasn't been a burden, but there's no question there's discovery. There is um, mandatory discovery because the play is changing because of the difference uh, in the blocking. And you're absolutely right. The excavation of the character. Also, we have the playwright has rewritten the beginning and the end. And that's a pretty big deal. He has deepened his work and I think made it ever more universal. And that is great for us. And he's been very cooperative, very. So it's been wonderful working with Mark St. Germain. And we are we are so grateful and we're able to vivify various areas and secure in the success of this play. So if we want to change a slant of a line, we ask his permission. And I've really never heard him say no to anything. 
So that has been a great gift to us, a great gift to us. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned with this larger floor plan that you said that you were stalking the stage almost like a soldier. And what I think a lot of folks don't realize is that Dr. Ruth, you know, was a military trained uh, sniper and has, you know, that uh, that background as you are inhabiting uh, this woman, how has that ability to kind of have that aggression in the in the movement? How has that changed the the, I guess, interpretation or vision of who she was as a character? And then, of course, how more illuminating is it for her as a real life human being for you? When you're doing a character, you want a seamless relationship between you and the character. And to do that, you have to seek cellular coincidence let us say. And Ruth and I were both heavily influenced by our fathers. Her father taught her the importance of education and the strain through the play, the thread through the play of her constantly seeking to learn, constantly seeking a person who did not, was not allowed to graduate high school because of the war, did not get a baccalaureate because she had no funds and her first husband decided not to become a doctor, so she had to stop her courses at the Sorbonne and be completely on her own. So without a high school degree or a college diploma, she was awarded her master's degree and her doctorate, both from the New School and then from Columbia University. That's pretty extraordinary. So um, she never stops learning, and that, I think, has kept her alive in many ways. She is so curious so participatory. And in terms of her testosterone, she just was the treasured child of her mother and her father. She, she adopted those values. And I don't think it occurred to her that she couldn't be a sniper. And she's very, very, she's still a very good shot. And the woman is 93. In terms of how I feel about her, I was brought up a lot by my father. I was a horsewoman as a very young girl. And my father used to say, Terry Sue, how often can a little girl tell a big animal what to do? And that's how I rode horses. So that was very, very good. Um, <clears throat> I love playing the character because she right-sizes my life. How can you worry about bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic or, let's say, bad audio reception when you have her backstory, which <laughs> she never really presents. It's presented in this play. That's the treasure of the play, that you enact this whole saga of being sent supposedly for six months to Switzerland, which turns out to be six years. She's ripped away from her family as her mother and father and grandmother are being murdered at Auschwitz, as they are being murdered and put into an oven. Um, and she uh, ends the war with nobody. I mean, she yes, she has her mother's sisters, or maybe uh, I think her father had, was an only child as well. So uh, she, she could have had a disastrous life. And because of the love she got in the primary 10 years of her life, she was able to negotiate an incredible upward spiral in the creation of her own adulthood, which is astounding. It's utterly heroic. And uh, that's the honor of playing this part. When you're done listening to this play, you will think anything is possible for yourself. If she could do this, what can you do? Yeah. She can do this. Think what you can do. And, you know, she had people calling her a midget, for God's sake. I said, were your feelings ever hurt? This isn't in the play. She said, yes. Somebody once called me a midget. They made fun of my, my size. Uh, so that was very interesting. Well, no, I was just going to say that is so interesting that 
all of the things that she has been through in her life and and something like that is something that still hurt her and and i think that kind of shows the vulnerability that someone can still have despite all of the strength um, and everything that they present outwardly they can still be um so emotionally open uh in their real lives and you talk about these cellular coincidences and i'm listening to these things you're talking about dr ruth and it you know she didn't have the bachelor's degree and yet had these advanced degrees i'm talking about her emotional you know vulnerability and openness and maybe it's just me making connections but i feel like you could be talking about yourself as a as a performer um in perhaps different ways when i think of you as an as an actor and a performer i always think of somebody who is incredibly curious who is always trying to do new things and 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 can present these characters who are tough and and strong but also um show their humanity and their vulnerability as well so whether those are great acting choices or cellular coincidences i feel like you and this character really are um, so much alike, even if the details of your stories um, are quite different. I, I, you know, I hope that the audience finds this as great a match as I have found it. It has been a total joy to explore her character and to excavate the character. And she says things like, I am a yeke, I am a German too. German, uh, yekes do not cry. Think of a duck gliding on the lake so peacefully, but under the water, the duck never stops paddling. So she has these things where she's, the word isn't tough, where it is her obligation to smile so that other people won't feel sad. That is how hmm. she was brought up. We call it Kinderstube in uh, German. That's uh, My family was Austrian, and, and I remember that word, Kinderstube, a well-mannered child, a child with a smile on their face um, so that they are pleasant uh, in, in the in the company of other people. And I don't know that I ever felt that obligation as a kid, though I did feel an obligation to be polite and to entertain. I was a pianist before I was a, an actor, but as an older person, I have learned that the energy of a human being in a room is so important that if somebody is sitting in rehearsal doing messages on their cell phone, at this point in my career, I say with love, could you do that out in the hall? Because it sucks the Work energy, you have a stage manager who's diligent on the computer, a designer on the computer, all concentrated, trying to make the production well. And then some very well-intentioned person comes in and decides to do their work on their phone. And I maybe, you know, call, hmm. call me vulnerable, but I can't, uh, I can't manage it. I, I, I always ask management to ask that person if they'd like to do their phone. They're most welcome to do it outside of the theater. I don't want to see them doing the rest of their life when I'm trying to do a play. Yeah. You know, it's bad enough when you do a concert and they say the catering staff will be in by 4:30 in the middle of the end of your, you know, rehearsal for tonight's concert and they'll be setting the tables. I hope you don't mind. I said I I don't mind. I'll manage, but when you're doing this play and it's so delicate and so many changes are going in, I think to the betterment of the piece, to the betterment of the piece. Um, uh, that we need all hands on deck. Also, we're still in the time of COVID. We're in the time mm-hmm. where we're all being tested every morning, every single morning that Q-tip is going in every nostril that is entering this community. And we're very positive and very uh, hopeful that um, people will continue to come to the theater in whatever they can manage. 
Um, and of course, nobody's allowed in this theater without proof of inoculation and a mask. There's, there's no question that COVID pro protocols exist. So it's funny. The upside of this horrendous, pa unending pandemic is the gratitude you have for just being alive. She says um, she's at the orphanage. And Fräulein Riesenfeld says, Kinder, you must stop asking me every day if I have a letter for you. If I have it, you'll get it. It is time to look at your situation clearly. We did not tell your families we want your children. You were given away. Do you think if your parents truly loved you, they would have done such a thing? <laughs> they are not like us. They are, they are Schlangenelter. They are snakes who eat their young. You should be grateful that they write you at all. Remember, you are here because of the charity of the Swiss people. Remember how lucky you are. And she says, how could we complain? We were lucky. We were alive. So there are moments in this play that are very, very touching. And the fact that Ruth never had closure about the death of her parents and has never been to Auschwitz and will never go. Yeah. No. So she's never had closure. Imagine if you lost your parents in mystery. Heck, I was upset when they decided to bury John John Kennedy in the sea and that he wouldn't have a grave site near his mother and father at Arlington Cemetery that I could go lay a, a rose on, you know? I'm, I'm very excited in these dangerous times to deal with a life well-lived and a life who's, that's still alive. We just lost Stephen Sondheim. Mm -hmm. This thing is coming out of South Africa, and I don't mean to be uh, depressing because I'm the last person to worry. I have unbridled optimism for my father, and Ruth has chosen optimism. Ruth Westheimer is so optimistic that even the ends of our sentences go up. They go up at the end. I love that. So uh, that I'm faced with. And she's incredibly charming, Matt. So the, the, the mask, if you will, the Kinderstube, not mask, the, the Kinderstube presentation over her private feelings is very strongly trained, very strongly trained. And we benefit from it. Tova, how are you? Tell me the news. I only want the good news. Tova, you are brilliant. Now, I don't know if I'm brilliant or not, but you can bet your bottom dollar she is going to support my cause playing her in the universe. And uh, she doesn't want any negativity around her. And it's really um, quite a lesson. I think that she would not have survived as well as she did without the idea, I write about it again in my memoir, that happiness is a choice. And sometimes you mm -hmm. have to will it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm in a 45 relationship with my husband, and there were great days, and there are days that not, are not quite as great when we bicker a little. But let me tell you, we bicker a lot less now because we're both in the third act. So number our days for our days mm -hmm. are numbered. And I, Ruth Westheimer or I or my beloved Andrew Levy take a moment for granted. Also, in 1997, she's 69 years old. She comes home from an Academy Awards party, and her husband has had a stroke, and he dies. Wow. He never opened his eyes again. He just dies. And uh, there was nothing she could do. And so she is now 93. So think about it. She has lived 24 years as a widow, almost a quarter of a century. Wow. You've you've mentioned your memoir, Lilyville, a, a couple of times, and you also mentioned the recent passing um, of Stephen Sondheim. And I remember 
and I don't remember if this was actually connected to the release of your memoir or if it, if it predated it or came after it, but you actually had written a separate piece or maybe it came from the book, um, you know, highlighting the fact that you have played Madame Rose in Gypsy and um, you, she has some connections to the relationship that you had um, with your mother. I, I wonder from the point of the book and with Sondheim's passing, um, and you've spoken so much about y- your father, where is um, your, how does your mother fit into this portrayal of, of Dr. R- Dr. Ruth as well? Is, is, are there shades of her, your relationship with her in here as well? Well, my mother was not a verbal expressor of feelings, so she never said, I loved you. Till I asked her point blank, I was already a freshman in college. And I said, do you love me? And it was right out of Fiddler. Do I love you? Who takes you to Rita <laughs> Chasen for your dance? Class? Who takes you to your singing lessons? Who clothes you? Who clothes you at Lord and Taylor and Saks Fifth Avenue? We only buy our undergarments from Alexander's. Who cooks for you? That's what it was like. Incidentally, I never was taught to cook because I was busy practicing the Mendelssohn G minor or Absidine Blue, which I played. 13-year-old, the full symphonic version at my at my graduation from eighth grade at Quaker Ridge School. So um, my mother was this tough love that maybe Irma Hanauer gave her daughter. Ah, this is my mother, Irma Hanauer. She is smiling here, but I don't remember her smiling often. I think that was because of one reason, my grandmother, Selma Siegel. My mother came from a village farm to work as a household helper in my grandparents' apartment in Frankfurt. This is where she met my father, Julius. Julius was not part of a job description. So when mama got pregnant, they had to marry. That was that. Grandmother Siegel was not happy. And she talks about the grandmother looking down on her. But they said, since my mother was working all day, it was my grandmother who read and played and sang me all day. She told me, always smile and be cheerful. Just remember you are loved. Now, Mark St. Germain didn't write that as a song, but I sing it as a song. And he's a great playwright. He said, sing away, baby. Just do, it, do whatever turns you on and whatever you think vivifies the story. So it's, it's been a great ride with him and with my beloved director, Scott Schwartz. This is our fourth collaboration. Uh, Golders Balcony, uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, The Prompter, and now this wonderful um, Becoming Dr. Ruth. And, you know, you imbibe the virtues of the characters you play, whether it's Golda or even Leona Helmsley, who's viewed as a villainess. And in fact, mm-hmm. Leona Helmsley was a genius in one area. She was a genius household executive. She could see dust where nobody else could see it. She wasn't just throwing around her weight. She could actually see disorder where nobody else could perceive it. So talent is the ability to hit a target nobody else can hit. Genius is the ability to hit a target nobody else can see. So by the third time she told somebody who was not of her background or who didn't who didn't speak English, the third time she told them to clean to clean that place up, she was screaming and she fired them. I'm not saying it was good, but I as the actor have to find a path in. So what's mm-hmm. the path into Ruth Westheimer? The path into Ruth Westheimer is that she never gives up. And we were in previous Bay Street and she said, We're going to New York. We're going to New York, and what really make me happy is to open at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And she said it over and over and over again. Wow. And the money fell from the sky. And you here know, you are. Several, and here we are, opening in New York at this gorgeous, renovated, 
state-of-the-art theater, um, you know, called Sacra Hall, where they've just put millions of dollars into it. And um, it, it's thrilling to take this story to New York, and I hope that we can all gather to listen to it. That is my greatest hope, that we all gather wisely and cautiously to hear this marvelous, marvelous tale told of a woman and a life well-lived who's still alive. She's still yeah. cooking. So my mother, my mother was not the most verbal person till uh, my father died, and then she became extremely expressive. So the last 20 years of my life with my mother and her last 20 years was a blossoming of a lily, just like her namesake. Her name was wow. Lily, Lillian Phil. That's, um, that's lovely. What else can you ask me? And questions are so good. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I, you, I've been kind of fascinated about you saying that you take something from each of these characters and the, from Dr. Ruth, it's this optimism. Um, you have such a history of playing real life characters, which I, you know, obviously it's not all that you do, but you have, you know, built a career on doing these shows in which you are embodying real life, very strong uh, women. I wonder if there's anything that you find yourself on a day to day basis saying, oh, I I got this from this character. I got this from that character. Is there anything that, that comes to mind that truly changed you uh, to the core to the point where it's still fairly obvious today? I wouldn't say change me, it supported me to the core. So, for instance, when I played Catherine Hepburn, as you know, she went swimming in the Connecticut River every day until she died. Rain or shine, winter or summer. So I swim a mile a day when I'm at my home in Quag, 50 circles of 40, 20, 40, 20. It's actually 1.2 miles. And then I go into the sea. Now, I went into the sea last weekend, and it was November. But I went into the sea very briefly in the freezing cold, and I'll tell you, you you swim a mile in your heated pool, and you have a, jacuzzi, <laughs> a spa at 104, and you're in that water, and then you go in the freezing sea, and oh. then you go take a steam. How unhappy can you be? The answer is, you're not unhappy at all. Your body is thrilled to feel so alive. So from Kate Hepburn, I think of her when I swim. From Golda, I think of her love of Israel, and I do stand by Israel in an enlightened, liberal, democratic way. I will uh, wrap this up because I'm sure you uh, have a long week ahead of you. But um, you talked about working with Mark St. Germain, who is a playwright that I've admired and, and spoken to on a number of occasions throughout the years. And he has this way of, of really taking real life characters, uh, real life people and his, you know, created characters and adding in a humanity to them that I think is often overlooked. I've seen a number of his shows about populations that um, might be looked down upon, but he always finds a way to make them um, understandable. And I, and I always feel that with the real life uh, characters that he puts in his shows that these people like Dr. Ruth, who are bigger than life, who we know as, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, characters on TV or on talk shows. I remember Dr. Ruth being on, you know, daytime talk shows throughout my childhood, but he finds a way to imbue them with humanity. What is it about this show specifically that gets beneath the veneer of the character that she purposely puts out there and allows us to see inside her as a real human? Well, her big thing is inclusion. I mean, uh, what's not in the show, unfortunately, is her relationship with AIDS. She was one of the first people to defend 
AIDS mm-hmm. research and defend the gay community. And her sex therapy absolutely includes every shade of every different kind of sexual behavior. She does not treat sadomasochism because the therapist has to, because I do not treat two conditions, sadomasochism because the therapist has to visualize and I do not want to, <laughs> and bestiality. I'm not a veterinarian. So she, there are two conditions she prefers not to treat. But other than that, she is a wide open, ultra curious, always learning um, book and facilitator for well wellness. Um, uh, and in terms of her humanity, well, you know, despite her hard knocks, she never gave up. She never, she never gave up. She is like a stay out mentioned doll. You knock it down, it pops right back up again. She said, what other choice do I have? And uh, she found great love with Fred. She didn't give up on marriage. She had two marriages that didn't work, but she moves on. I love turtles, but maybe because of the turtle mark on my doll, Matilda's back. But turtles, they seem to have only two choices. They can either hide in their shell and go nowhere, or they can stick their necks out and go forward. Turtles are yekkes. They're strong and they do not cry. And yekka is the word for jacket, the mispronunciation of the word jacket, which is the term that refers to the German Jews who entered Israel um, before and after World War II, that everybody was dressed for a, ver- for a desert climate, except the German Jews were in yekets. They were in jackets and ties and, and suits. They dressed formally. And... Uh, she loves uh, that she is a German Jew. She loves German music. That may be little. We're starting uh, at my request with German music at the top of the show. So it's a very complex relationship. And from the from the orphanage at Bartheim, she could feel Cross Lake Constance and the Allied bombs dropping on Friedrichshafen Harbor like shooting stars. Now, you can't make that stuff up. And that's an entry that's just going in, uh, I hope, thanks to the grace of Mark. I mean, we've been sending him. And because of my last visit with Ruth, tell me more about Vartime. Paint the picture of that orphanage for me. And that's what she said. So by 1943, she was there for six years and then got a certificate where she could be a maid. Can you imagine? Be a domestic in the houses of the Swiss. That's when the uh, Palestinian... Jews came from Palestine to say, help us build a homeland where you and your children will be safe. And she said, made or go to Israel and try to build a state. So she got there and then she decided to join the Haganah, the Jewish underground army. And she was trained as a sniper, as a sharpshooter. She does not believe she has killed anybody. I hope for her sake she didn't. And um, she was there. She was there. I, and it, what she was at night, I would stand on the roof with my rifle, protecting the Israeli soldiers at the entrance to the city as they stopped every car to check it. I had not been on surveillance more than three weeks when I walked home late at night to the youth hostel where I was living. The minute I got to the door of my room, the sirens sounded. They told us to run downstairs to the basement. On my way down, I said, wait a minute, I can take my homework. Who knows how long I'll be down there or will be down there. I ran back up to the lobby and she, she got critically wounded bombs went off in that lobby and shrapnel went into her body and took off the top of her right foot. Wow. So did you know that about Ruth? I, did I didn't not. know that. No. She danced at my daughter's wedding. 
So whatever that was with a missing half of her foot, it had an operation. She got well and she learned to walk again and she learned to ski again and she learned to swim again. She went for it. And I can tell you, she was at Amanda's wedding, our daughter's wedding seven years ago, and uh, she danced into the night well what, past midnight. What a what an incredible woman she she is and what an incredible inspiration she has been for so many people for so many different reasons for so long now i am very very happy that um an actor of your caliber and insight and sympathy is is playing her in this production that it sounds like from what you said hopefully is not going to stop with this production and hopefully will have a much longer life in places uh in the future so thank you so much for talking about this i always thoroughly enjoy hearing you talk about acting so this was was really a treat and uh, i cannot tell you how much i appreciate it you're you are so welcome I, i think the whole trick is to excavate deeply enough that you you get to the river of universal human experience so that when i birth for you things that happen to her it's not just an oh my god i've never heard of that i've never seen that it's uh, also there are moments where you go oh that's like my situation oh if she can do that what can i do if tova can play mm-hmm. peter pan <laughs> what can i do if in her 60s she can hang upside down from a trapeze and sing a hit tune at you know while she's doing it for the yeah. full trapeze what can that's that that's also ruth's great gift she she gives you that she engenders that hope in yourself and, and we, as you said earlier given everything that everyone is going through um, with the pandemic and everything else that's happened in the past year and a half uh, hope and that optimism that you spoke of is definitely something that we could all use more of right now so thank you again have a wonderful um, uh, technical rehearsal week and a great first performance on uh, on December 4th December 4th which is six months from June 4th which was her birthday June 4th is her birthday so she'll be 93 and a half (laughs) that's a that's a great age to be thank you so much have a good night you too bye bye